this might not make it into the episode but i feel that i really should swear more often in the podcast episodes because just out of i don't know conservatism and efficiency i've made the podcast episodes by default all explicit so they're all tagged explicit whether we say anything vulgar or impolite or not because i just assumed we always would hello beautiful people welcome back to another episode of the bits of attention podcast I'm Jared, and joining me, as always, is just one of my favorite human beings, the one and only Jean-Luc. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you're probably quite analytical. And we've had episodes about deep learning, cryptocurrency, game theory, and we bring up Eliezer Yadkowski so much that Jean-Luc and I have started measuring the MTTY, which is mean time to Yadkowski, for each episode. By the way, this week's episode was 37 minutes and 8 seconds by my watch. Anyway, I think what excites me so much about this podcast is the opportunity to have a conversation with a group of smart, driven, interested people, right? The kinds of people who listen to podcasts about deep learning and cryptocurrency and game theory, and then occasionally to do episodes like number 11 on Slack and scarcity or meditation and self-awareness. I just, I get so excited to share ideas and conversations from all these different areas of science and psychology and life. And what I hope this podcast does is satiate the natural curiosity of the kind of person that listens to podcasts like this, while balancing this out by inserting episodes about things that people like yourselves, and if we're honest here, myself and Jean-Luc in particular, tend to miss out on or neglect. This week's episode is exactly that. It's an episode about all of the ways that analytical thought and rationality can take us away from a deeper more engaged way of being in the world. We read passages from Robert Persig's wonderful novel Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, reacting and discussing as we go. Now, to be fair to Jean-Luc, this was a surprise to him. Uh, Before he recorded, he hadn't read the book, and I think I only told him which book we were going to discuss about 20 minutes before we hit record. So I think he did a pretty good job of thinking on his feet and... There was a lot of meat in this discussion, and we explored the limits of conceptual understanding, how the words we use to describe reality also end up defining it, limiting it, or even sometimes, if we're doing it right, expanding it. We talk about cliches, what makes them so easy to dismiss, and when maybe we shouldn't dismiss them. We also discuss what it means to understand something, and how our intuitive sense of what is excellent can guide us to cook great food, write beautiful code, and be delightful people. This episode was experimental, and there's a lot left in the book that we could discuss. So I've given this episode the subtitle part one of question mark, because really whether we abandon this or do many more episodes of this format with either the same or a different book is dependent on whether you guys enjoy it and whether you feel it adds value to your lives. So let us know. Anyway, I also want to remind you that we've set up a way for you guys to send us your comments as a voice recording. So if you want to be featured on the show, tell us how much you love it or hate it whatever at speakpipe.com forward slash pod tangent and please remember to share this podcast with a friend you think might enjoy it just that one simple action makes a disproportionate difference all right okay this intro is over let's get on with it enjoy the episode of bit of a tangent
what I was thinking about today, right, is I want to try a new kind of episode, right? So I read a book recently called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. and One of those classics, one that has been on my to-read list for about eight years now. Well, there we go. But I haven't read. Okay, well, you've heard of it then, which is a good start. Right? I have heard of it. Of okay. So what I'm thinking about doing today, and we'll see if this is awful or if this is good or if this is interesting, is the book has kind of two components. It has a plot, you know, with the characters and how they acted out. But underneath all of that is really dressing for a philosophical point. Okay. Right? And what I want to see if we can do today is a sort of leading through that process of understanding the arguments. So what I want to try is we'll read some passages and then just interpret them uh, on the fly and see if it sounds good or not. Sounds like a cool plan. So what I, what I was always unsure about with Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance was the kind of structure the book took. Uh, so now from what you're saying, it seems to me like it's in the same vein as let's say Atlas Shrugged or Fountainhead from Ayn Rand, or, uh, let's say like, um, you know, the stranger from Albert Camus or something where a narrative is being used as the delivery method for some philosophical idea or set of ideas as opposed to just, you know, writing some philosophical paper, actually using a story to convey the information in a more natural and uh, tangible way, perhaps? Yeah, I think that's very much the tradition that it's uh, drawing on. So I think the easiest way to start is the way that I start every book. So I have the physical copy here, and the inside of the dust jacket has a paragraph which maybe we can just start with so that says it says the study of the art of motorcycle maintenance is really a miniature study of the art of rationality itself working on a motorcycle working well caring is to become part of a process to achieve an inner peace of mind the motorcycle is primarily a mental phenomenon the real cycle you're working on is a cycle called yourself. Mm, I like that. So already I think we're getting into territory which is esoteric and interesting. I mean, esoteric is our home ground, so we, sh we should be strong here. <laughs> well, I think when I, when I finished the book, I, I almost immediately wanted to reread it. I think it's one of those where by the end you've come so far in terms of the steps you've been walked through on in reasoning. I felt it was very important. I thought it it signaled something which I either felt was lacking in my own life or which I would just like to do more of. And I think what brings that point across quite well is this next line here. So it reads, What's new? is an interesting and broadening eternal question, but one which, if pursued exclusively, results only in an endless parade of trivia and fashion, the silt of tomorrow. I would like instead to be concerned with the question, what is best? Hmm. Okay. So what is new versus what is best? Almost a counter-liberal idea, right, of looking more towards the traditional and that which is tried and trusted and has proven itself to be long-lasting and successful over the latest fad. But at the same time, underlying that is the idea that it must be what's best, not just what was done before, right? So things which are tradition but are less effective should be discarded in favor of better things. So at the same time, it's kind of balancing this idea of rejecting fads and sticking to the tried and trusted with the idea of being experimental and testing things out and having a hypothesis that is evaluated and reviewed and adjusting the parameters thereafter. So what I'll say is that the rest of the book spends a lot of time on this abstract concept called quality. Hmm. 
And immediately that should bring to mind this connection. What is best and quality are quite intricately connected. And what I hope to achieve by doing this podcast is walk through some of the steps into an intuitive understanding of what quality represents and why it might be a kind of guiding light, if possible. Okay. On the show, we've often spoken before about simple rules of thumb that greatly simplify what you do or don't do in any given day, right? We've spoken about how there is more out there than you could ever possibly do given unlimited time, Mm -hmm. right? And so having rules of thumb that rule out a bunch of things or rule in a very narrow subset, the things that you really care about, I think that's an important and valuable practice to develop. Right, absolutely. Okay, so it's it's this process of doing your thinking beforehand to come up with succinct heuristics, rules of thumb, whatever you want to call them, that allow you to just quickly retrieve from cash these ideas in the future and make good decisions, right? So if we can come up with succinct rules that get us the right answer in like 95 to 99% of cases, then we can just ingest those rules and then use them throughout our life with minimal effort and continually be making good decisions. Yep. I think that's exactly what we're trying to get to. And this, this, this idea of quality that you say permeates through the book, I can potentially see how that is tightly coupled with this idea of motorcycle maintenance and with the, the original uh, excerpt that you read from the, the dust jacket of almost like a craftsmanship approach to something uh, and, or the craftsman's approach to something rather where it's not about producing it the fastest it's not mass produced it's not cheapest it's about quality quality you know if you think of like a really skilled carpenter or someone who's making the highest grade of musical instrument by hand those kind of people and that craftsman's mindset and and that seems tightly linked with quality and i mean this can extend to things like coding as well presumably so i'd imagine that is where the motorcycle maintenance aspect of the book comes in well now that you said that let me fill you a bit in there so a large part of the book is concerned with the distinction between what the author calls classic thinking and romantic thinking right right So here I'll read for you. A classical understanding sees the world primarily as underlying form itself. A romantic understanding sees it primarily in terms of immediate appearance. If you were to show an engine or a mechanical drawing or electronic schematic to a romantic, it is unlikely he would see much of interest in it. It has no appeal because the reality he sees is its surface. Dull, complex lists of names, lines and numbers. Nothing interesting. But if you were to show the same blueprint or schematic or give the same description to a classical person, he might look at it and then become fascinated by it because he sees that within the lines and shapes and symbols is a tremendous richness of underlying form. Interesting. Okay, so it's that contrast between the exterior surface level aesthetic and the love of the deeper complexity and the nuance and the hierarchy of abstraction that allows complex things like motorcycles to be built and maintained and run. I quite like that. It almost reminds me of, uh, I believe it was Einstein. And if it wasn't Einstein, it's fine. We can just quote Einstein and, and, and that, that'll be accepted on the internet. But the Einstein quote where he said that, you know, you must either accept that nothing is a miracle or everything is something along those lines. And with that classical view If you have sufficient understanding of the principles of the universe, and many people these days do, then you must almost look at everything and see it as a miracle because the amount of complexity and nuance and subtle beauty that imbues everything around us is almost overwhelming. But yet on the surface, it can easily be discarded and ignored. So a key idea in the book and of classic thought in general, right, Mm. is Western scientific thought. And one thing that you do in science or in any descriptive empirical discipline is you break things down into subparts. You know, categories have little subcategories and you continue on down until you try and find some base reality, right? 
and and this is the analytic mode of thought right this is the root of the word analysis means to break down right and in the book they use the sort of metaphor of a knife and this knife is what you cut reality with but a lot of the book is concerned with how this analytic deconstruction of the world can almost distance us from seeing it intuitively right which is more a romantic way of being okay and obviously you can tell from the title and the inclusion of the word zen that ultimately we're going to end up somewhere on the spectrum of sort of meditative knowledge or sort of insight if i can use that word okay so let me read to you a little bit about the knife and then we will go from there fantastic the application of this knife the division of the world into parts and the building of this structure is something everybody does all the time we are aware of millions of things around us these changing shapes these burning hills the sound of the engine the feel of the throttle each rock and weed and fence post and piece of debris beside the road aware of these things but not really conscious of them unless there is something unusual or unless they reflect something we are predisposed to see we could not possibly be conscious of these things and remember all of them because our mind would be so full of useless details we would be unable to think from all this awareness we must select and what we select and call consciousness is never the same as the awareness because the process of selection mutates it we take a handful of sand from the endless landscape of awareness and call that handful of sand the world wow i feel like we would have got on pretty well with this guy <laughs> he's pretty much right at that beautiful intersection of rationality and mindfulness that makes for such interesting discussions that wax lyrical one minute and then delve into the axioms of an argument the next actually quite an, an interesting guy i mean this is he wrote this back in the 70s right it's uh, robert m persig right 74 yeah uh so i actually i mean i've never read the book but i listened to an npr interview with him from just before the book was released so it, no one knew that it was going to be a bestseller yet and only the person interviewing him and a few others had actually read it and i mean a really grounded guy there's something to be said for interviews in the in the 70s too which were probably at a different pace to what we've come to expect these days but i think that translates quite well into the writing and an interesting character in that i mean he wrote technical manuals for computers by day that was his day job and yeah. he rode in in the art of motorcycle maintenance by getting up at two in the morning going somewhere to like a cafe or, or i don't know where it was open and he would just sit there and either he rode or he didn't but he just went and sat there every day and something came out or it didn't and then he would go to work wow <laughs> like this this, this is before you had jocko willink to motivate you to get up early in the morning right let's not let's not forget this, these were these were tougher times so i think as i was saying earlier right and what that quote is getting at is this notion where when you try and categorize right you apply the tools of western thought and western science in some sense you're also restricting what can be known right okay and i think a quote that perfectly captures that is here which says when analytic thought the knife is applied to experience something is always killed in the process and you know there's much made in buddhism as far as i understand about first of all emptiness mm. right this idea that things aren't intrinsically something in and of themselves right they're always relational and they're always kind of not what you're making of them but they're not imbued with the essence that we in our confusion about things seem to give them right and there, there's something to be said about a sort of wordless appreciation of things right it's like there's two ways to listen to a song or to eat a meal or to taste wine right or look at a painting in one you have the vocabulary and thoughts of an expert right you can sniff the wine and describe the floral notes you can talk about the body and the aftertaste and you can get at it at a technical level, right? And that's kind of scientific or at least classical 
ways of dealing with the world, right? Sure. You can look at the painting and describe the composition and the proportions and symbolism. But on the other hand, I think sometimes, and particularly maybe in the culture that we've grown up in, that becomes an obstacle to directly perceiving the thing as it is, right? Okay. It's like, yes, sometimes there is value in being able to describe the meal you're eating in very technical, very detailed terms. Maybe you'll actually appreciate facets of it that undescribed would have been lost. But you can also, it's totally possible, to distract yourself so much with the attempt to categorize and label that you can fail to taste the food that is in front of you. Mm. That's very much the case. I mean, my own experience of this is definitely when you mentioned tasting wine and the amount of analysis that can go into something like that. And I've done some courses on this and done some competitions or training for them at least where you're trying to do blind tastings, you're trying to categorize, you're trying to distinguish one varietal from another. And you can get very, very bogged down in that. And then sometimes you just want to sit back and taste the wine. And when someone asks you, do you like the wine? You just want to go, yeah, it's good. Or no, not so much. You don't always want to dig deep into that. My question though is, does this necessarily map over to things outside of daily experiences? Does this kind of approach to things work in a laboratory setting or when you're writing code or when you are working on some kind of mathematical proof? What I would say is this, first of all, what I think Persig, the author, would say is, is yes. And I think what he would ask is how is it that when you write code or when you do a proof, where does the next line come from, right? So okay, you program much more than I do, right? And when you create a piece of code, one of the beautiful things about computer science, right, is there are several ways to implement any given function, right? Sure. You want a program to do X, and you could do that so many different ways. Different data structures, different uh, kind of loops through them. Yeah. Exactly, right? And even just the different like philosophies behind the programming languages in which you choose to do it. So here's a question, and I'd like you to answer it, is how do you settle on one, mm. right? Like what is it, what intuition, what rules of thumb are you following? Because yes, admittedly, sometimes you just want to do a hack job. But let's say you're doing something for yourself. What is it in your mind that you are following that makes you go down one path or another when there are seemingly so many? Yeah, it, it very much is the kind of thing that now that I think about it seems to just arise out of somewhere in my subconscious and the path becomes clear to some extent. Though I think if I sat down and put enough thought into it, I could articulate the philosophy governing it, right? I mean, I won't go into it fully now, but just to make this concrete, things along the lines of what is the first solution that occurs to you? Okay, wait, what is the second solution that occurs to you? Okay, which is more efficient in terms of the work the computer is going to be doing? And then does that justify the extra work it might require for me to implement now uh, and getting sort of a working solution that's decent done first. Now, I could see how that could be something I've learned over time. It's an intuition, a non-linguistic feeling that I've developed through many years of practice. And is this the kind of thing that he's referring to? So a mathematician would have the same thing when doing a proof. You would, you would have a sort of gut feel to convert something into a different form or to jump over to a different branch of mathematics, maybe taking something out of, you know, some arbitrary representation and into, you know, multidimensional space uh, with vectors, for instance. Is that intuition what Persig is referring to? That, that, that instinct that we've developed that's non-linguistic? So I think you hit on something very interesting there, right? Which is, in general, there are so many ways of achieving some end goal. And this could be in the hard sciences or this could be in art, right? But with art, I feel like this is more intuitive for people because people understand that when you generate art, there is something that you are trying to achieve 
and there is a skill to doing it well, right? But in science, that isn't codified so well uh, in maths as well. So as you say, right, when you're trying to do the proof, there's this intuition that you're following, right? And that intuition, yes, it's built up by experience, right? Yes, it's built up by training. Mm. Yes, it's built up by much practice. But once you know that you could prove a theorem using uh, some sort of vector calculus, or you could prove it using another branch of mathematics, the question of which do you use, right? Ultimately, for Persig at least, the answer is that humans have this intuitive sense of quality, mm. right? And this is capital Q quality here because Persig has a lot to say about this. But for now, let's just say that it is really as simple as it sounds, right? It's this intuitive sense we have of good and bad. And how I find it useful to think about this is the place that I feel this the most, the place that would convince me that this really exists, right, is that internal conversation you have with yourself when you know that you're doing something wrong or you're doing something right. Uh, wrong or right morally or wrong or right sort of practically? I think it's indeterminate between those, right? I mean, so just take, for example, you're interacting with other people or you have roommates, right? And you say something... And later you find yourself questioning why you said that. And what Persig would argue is you are quite intuitively in touch with the sense in which what you said felt good to you. Like it felt like a sentence which putting out in the world was going to be right. And I know that obviously when you say right in that normative sense, there are a dozen philosophical schools that would disagree that that's the correct way to frame things. But for now, the point being that on an intuitive human level, we often have the sense in which we know when we're being good or we're being right. And you, in the same way, you, you know when you're slacking. Or you, like, for example, have you ever made yourself a promise mm. and you, at the moment of making it, you knew that you weren't going to keep it? Mm. You, you said to yourself, I'm not going to eat like that anymore, or I need to cut down on my drinking. I mean, there are all kinds of promises. And you knew as you said it, you could feel somewhere in some dark recess at the back of your mind that you were really saying this almost to convince some part of yourself this was true. Right. But a deeper part of yourself was not convinced at all. Or the other version of this, which is you've made the promise, you've committed to something, but then when something sort of tempts you away from whatever that might be, the moment where you give in, and that moment actually comes way before you, the real giving in. So let's take the example of like you're on a diet, right? And you've committed that for 30 days, you're not going to eat sugar, you know, just as one of these sort of experimental things that people sometimes try. And then, you know, day 23, you see that chocolate bar at 10 in the morning in the work fridge or something and you kind of know and felt at that minute that you were going to break the promise or you know you were going to renege on your challenge to yourself but yet you put up this sort of mental charade for a few minutes or a few hours going no I shouldn't and I mustn't but I'm tempted and I'm not but really you knew back then at 10 a.m. that you were going to break down and eventually at 1 p.m. after lunch go and grab the the chocolate bar from the fridge. So, yes, I can see that. And I feel like with all of this, and, and especially with the examples of the mathematician or the programmer having the sort of instinct to know what to do next, even artists creating some sort of work, if we were to model them at a neural level, we could in theory, describe all the components that go into this instinct, right? We can use the analytical mode in principle to build up any of these kind of instincts. They are no different from any other thing we learn in that sense. It, there's no magic happening here. There's no touch with the divine, but it feels that way. And you can't access these instincts or these feelings from an analytical perspective in a conscious mind you might be able to do it in a laboratory in 30 years time but we can't do it in our own minds that way and so the only way to access it is almost to accept this 
willful illusion that you are connecting with some almost spiritual side of yourself right it's it's almost spirituality not as a belief about the universe it's spirituality as a life hack uh, it would be the, the the simplest way to put it but but it's more than that it, it's as a this is a fundamental quirk of the human condition human psychology human neurology and we can exploit that for our own benefit and i'm using exploit in the the technical sense yeah we, we're going to utilize it fully as a resource at our disposal yeah yeah so I, I think i think it's important to sort of caveat that and then go okay cool so we're accepting that there are these instincts here and there's probably some high cohesion between following these instincts and being in a flow state and doing deep work and being mindful and all of these other topics that we've touched on in numerous episodes before in greater detail what does persig bring that enhances our toolkit further than all of these ideas we've experienced before first of all i think it's interesting as you said i think at least in some podcast players we classify it as a science podcast <laughs> but we do spend a good deal of time talking about as you say flow and deep work and mindfulness and living better right and i don't think that's inconsistent in some sense right you know the science becomes human knowledge right and living well is part of that domain sure and of course we're increasingly seeing that as you know new and different disciplines are incorporated into like the sort of traditional structures of science and that is positive right to the extent that the science is good and solid mm. right so what does persig bring well i think what he brings or what he does very effectively is he introduces concepts which you would only acquire in my opinion by reading quite deeply into some school of buddhism i suspect okay. is probably the most reliable place to to go and get this knowledge this, this is the zen in zen and the art of motorcycle mate. yeah yeah if you went and read whatever texts are available about zen i suspect you'd get these ideas if you go and read into theravada or tibetan buddhism you'll find these around there and these are some in some sense the fundamentals of buddhist practice now i mean i'm not a buddhist i'm not exactly skilled or well versed in all of this but i read enough that i would feel comfortable talking about some of these and i can recognize where persig is drawing his ideas from and so the book is important i think because some of these ideas are probably extremely useful but they suffer from a kind of unexplainability or ineffability right okay. there's there's a set of statements which you can say and they sound really simple and then it turns out that to take them as simple would be to either miss the point or misunderstand but it wouldn't feel like misunderstanding right so it's very easy with a very complicated piece of mathematics to hear the statement and and you're you immediately flag it as something you don't understand right there there's no harm done right but the more insidious and possibly long-term damaging in the sense of just holding incorrect beliefs type of statements are the ones which are so trivially true right so obvious that you can quite quickly hear them internalize them and not realize because there was no internal flagging of confusion that you really haven't got the concept down and i think that an interesting practice that i've picked up this year has been looking again at all the clichés you stopped listening to in childhood and trying to figure out what was being said before the cliché became a cliché oh, i see what you're saying okay so almost the fact that this set of ideas is presented in a narrative structure it's there for a reason and that reason being the ideas are hard to articulate in succinct linguistic ways it's fundamentally different from explaining some other philosophical concepts that can be well summarized you know what is the the classic one uh, was it uh, aristotle is a man all men are mortal therefore aristotle socrates is, socrates <laughs> socrates it's socrates is a man 
all men are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. And yes, that's very, I mean, that works best articulated in simple, concise, almost satisfiable bits of information. Yeah. What Persig's philosophical ideas seem to be is something that is either inherently hard to articulate or no one has a good way of articulating it yet. And so it's expressed through this narrative structure. And so the only way to really like understand the stuff and engage with it and connect with it would be to read the book and live through that narrative experience. It's, it's that kind of thing that we're getting at here? Or am I reading too much into it? It's sort of that, right? Much of what you say is true. And we will come back. There was a second part to what you were saying about the, the cliches, which we'll come back to. Yeah, of course. Well, what I would just say is that for most people, right, these ideas I think are relevant. I think it's just that for most of us, we'll not get the chance to encounter them in a more formal place, right? I mean, mm. most people, maybe the extent of what they get into in terms of this kind of philosophy is just the sort of popular mindfulness meditation movement, which is good in and of itself, but there is more to it. And if this book provides a way to get at that stuff, then I think that's one of its higher purposes. Okay. But it's one of those experience it types of books, not one that the cliff notes give you 90% of the value. That's kind of how it feels to me. I mean, like for me, that was like uh, Albert Camus' The Stranger. Like you, mm. I, I, when I first read that, I just couldn't explain it to anybody. But it made so much sense reading it, which is an interesting one. I, yeah, right. And then coming back to this idea of cliches, right? And and it's one of those domains where as a teenager, you just roll your eyes at all of these things. And then later on in life, maybe when you start working, maybe like later in your 20s, after you've had a bit more experience... And certainly when people start having children, they just go, yeah, actually, it was right all along. And it's usually the kind of things that parents say and, you know, 15 or 16 year old you will completely disregard as stupid and not getting the point. But by the time you are in your 30s, it will be so inherently obvious to you as to make it worthy of its cliche. I, I assume you have some of these that are go-tos. I would imagine I do as well. And they'll come flooding into my consciousness immediately well here's one that i was thinking about just recently because in preparation for a future episode i've been reading up a lot on predictive processing or predictive coding right it's a yeah it's a theory in neuroscience i think it's possibly one of the most explanatory in terms of how the brain works who cares what i think but either way this is this seems to be i wouldn't say consensus but Let's just say it's interesting, right? And without taking this whole episode and devoting it to the content of this future episode, what I couldn't help but thinking when I was reading about predictive processing, which at a very high level just means that you need to do a lot of simulating of reality or sense data before you can do any perceiving of reality. Let's just leave it there and we'll park the details for another episode and I promise you it'll be worth it. But when I was thinking about this, I realized that the, the cliche of your thoughts determine your world or you are the story you're telling yourself or your thoughts define your reality, right? Yeah. All of those are very much, first of all, yuck-inducing. Mm. I can't really say them too seriously. And yet the spoiler is that if predictive processing is correct and there's a lot of good reasons to believe it is, mm. then the cliche is true in at least one sense, right? It's not your conscious thoughts that determine your world, but prior statistical beliefs about reality end up becoming reality in that paradigm. And I'll leave all the ambiguity there intentionally. And if we ever release an episode on this, you should definitely check it out. Uh, this, is, this is interesting. All right. I mean, because like, I'm now thinking of the kinds of cliches that, you know, like the sort of old wives tales many of which are, are bullshit, but some have really stood the test of time. Like, you know, getting a lot of sleep is good for you and will help you get over disease. Like people have been saying this for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And then in the last 50 or so, we've gone and produced this whole overwhelming body of evidence to demonstrate how this is true. And this, the effect size is tremendous. Or, right. I don't know, something as as trite as, you know, respecting your elders 
which actually has so much utility in most societal structures and has the upshot of the elders generally until the last hundred years, the elders pretty much had access to the most information and knowledge and wisdom of anyone around. And so they were the best people to learn from. We went and screwed that up a bit with uh, two world wars and then rapid technological innovation. But until very recently, it was almost the best advice. And it makes me wonder what makes some things cliches and other things just consensus, right? What makes... Mm get a good night's sleep or don't sweat the small stuff or any kind of statement that's easily expressed in that sense, that is true and has proven itself over time and has won out, you know, being the best, not the new. But yet we hear that and we go gross and we call it a cliche. And like a cliche, in my view, is just something that we don't like because it's common versus other things like evolution right which comes up all the time and yet it's not a cliche it's just the scientific consensus right you can just be like evolutionarily da, 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 and that's not considered a cliche like if the actual term comes up all the time i suppose if you overdo anything it becomes a cliche like happened with many of the terms from cryptocurrencies i don't think that's the theory i would expand for why cliches arise I mean, honestly, I'm more partial towards thinking of them in terms of things that you stopped paying attention to because of this this failure mode I mentioned where mm. it's possible to hear the statement without these internal flags of error processing, right? It's like a retrospective knowledge that you only can understand why it was the correct thing once you've experienced the opposite. So, I mean, like a, a famous one, if we wanted to talk about a scientific version of this, right? A scientific one where you can completely hear the statement, believe you have passed it, and then have completely misunderstood it, right? And this is something that uh, Elias Yadkowski does a really great job of mentioning, right? Where you can say that light is a wave, light is a particle, and believe that you have understood this deeply. And yet, until you've seen the Schrodinger equation you've missed something fundamental there, at least Yadkowski argues. One place where you do see this kind of failure to raise an error flag because of something which sounds deceptively simple is, in maths at least, as far as I know, Gödel's incompleteness theorem has this property. So like one way that you might hear it stated is that, and I'm getting this from uh, Julian Baghini's book, The Philosopher's Toolkit, and the simplified version, which you might hear, is that in any formal, consistent, logical system capable of describing arithmetic, there is at least one sentence that can neither be proved nor disproved within the system, right? Now, you can hear that and go, hmm, I think I get it, right? But apparently, right, and, and Begini writes this as well, says, according to Simon Singh in Fermat's Last Theorem, says that a mathematically accurate statement of Gödel's incompleteness theorem is to every W consistent recursive class K of formulae, their correspond recursive class signs R such that neither V gen R nor neg V gen R belongs to flag K where V is the free variable of R. Which is... Uh... Such a trite statement we've heard so many times that, it, you know, it it it, it verges on uh, meaningless, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I thought you were going to go into a like the actual technical explanation of Gödel's theorem. Not this, not this episode. It is very mindfucky and very weird, but very cool. Like, there's part of you that feels like there's some bullshit going on there, but at the same time, <laughs> it's like really cool, and you're like, but how? You, you can't say what's wrong with it. It just feels deeply unintuitive no. uh, it's really elegant i recommend people go check it out so all of this is just to say that and quantum physics actually suffers from this problem as well of course. right there's just several places where you fail to raise a flag of confusion mm. because each individual word in the sentence is familiar enough and yet the words are being used in highly specific highly dense mm. niche settings 
and yeah. you can fail to notice that, right? That I think that is the failure case of many cliches. That's kind of the model I've built for that. Yeah, I think another issue that you've run into with these kinds of things is uh, human tendency to make arguments by analogy or to mm. use metaphors to explain concepts. And this is a double-edged sword because it's fantastic for explaining concepts, right? Like you can explain wave-particle duality or at least the underlying concept that we've now come to call that much more intuitively and it's much more accessible by using that metaphor of little balls and little waves in the ocean. And that helps people understand what you're talking about without them having to understand the Schrodinger equation or any other representation of quantum mechanics. But then it suffers from the problem of the analogy or metaphor will inherently break down, right? So now we attribute the properties of things in the metaphor back to the underlying system the metaphor was describing. You know, if waves are particles and particles are waves and light is both things at the same time, well, then you have some intuitions about what should happen when you do the double slit experiment, but those intuitions don't work whatsoever. So it breaks down. And this happens all the time. So there's probably a bit of that going on as well. And, you know, this entire book is an analogy or a metaphor to some extent from not having read it, just the title alone and the concepts behind it. I would imagine that a large portion of the book, I mean, you could make the argument that anytime you're expressing some philosophical or technical ideas through a story or some kind of narrative, the whole thing is just an analogy or metaphor. And so mm -hmm. you have the same issues of you then get that double-edged sword whereby people argue going the other way and draw conclusions by modeling the metaphor back up to the abstract idea. I mean, what this reminds me of is Tim Urban's absolutely wonderful essay called The Cook and the Chef, right? Which is entirely about how you either reason by analogy, right? You reason in terms of familiar concepts, or mm -hmm. you are reasoning from first principles, and, and that implies this deeper understanding. Mm -hmm. So what I think we should do at this point, right, is we've sort of been talking about the book for going on 45 minutes, maybe. I think what we should do is put this episode out there and see how people react. And if people sure. hate it, then, well, we've learned something. And if people like mm -hmm. it, then there's much more in the book that I flagged that I think would be worthwhile. And so we could do a yeah. part two, part three, a part 18. We, we can just turn it into an audio book. I mean, I've been wanting to read this for ages. So it's it's literally on my Kindle. It was one of the mm. things I added before moving. Uh, so given this now, let me go read the book as well. And then we come to round two and I come at it from a different perspective because we've had mm. the advantage of the, the, the uh, asymmetry here to make for a bit of knowledge uh, flow between the two of us and a little yeah. bit of uh, testing assumptions. But now I'll go read the book. Uh, we'll get some feedback from people. So write into us, uh, send us uh, audio clips. We've set up a system. We've set up a speak pipe service. We've set up a speak pipe so people can send in uh, audio snippets to us if you want to be featured and we'll play those out. Or if you want to email us or stay anonymous, you can do that all as well. But yeah, let us know what you think of this and if you think we're wrong or what you'd like us to talk more about or if you'd prefer us to focus on some other book. Uh, and we can we can definitely do that. But this is an experiment uh, as much on this podcast is. Yeah, I mean, we're still figuring out, I think, what we want this to be. And I think we've had some good episodes and we kind of flip between very technical episodes like the deep learning episode. And we've definitely got more of those in the pipeline. So don't despair, particularly yeah. that one on predictive processing. But I want to do that one justice. And I've told Jean-Luc this. So we've got lots more research to do before we do that one. And I hope that's going to be a real good one. But yeah, we do, I think, want to try out this different style of episode. I mean, we should never be in the position where uh, more than 80% of the episodes are just the same formula, right? Yeah. You've got to be constantly trying and experimenting because yeah. otherwise things just become stale. Spoken like someone who did an entire degree in genetic algorithms. <laughs> You've uh, got a homogenous population going, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> otherwise you'll, you'll, you'll plateau and uh, get wiped out by a mass extinction event. There we go. Right. So 
what I wanted to say is let's close this down and end mm. with another sort of idea which we had, which is I wanted to ask you if we're going to leave people with something, right, and for at least the next week, right, until they hear from us again, I wanted to get maybe the one or two sort of most positive or most interesting or most useful pieces of advice or wisdom that you've encountered. It could be over the last few weeks or however long, but what's something that you want to leave people with? And then I'll finish off. There are a couple potential candidates here. I think one that's been particularly pertinent to me of late with moving to a new city, a new country, an entirely new life, and meeting many people along with that is a piece of advice from Dale Carnegie, which is All right. to remember that a person's name is to them the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Aha. And this, I think, I believe this comes from his How to Win Friends and Influence People, uh, which we casually won up a few episodes ago by influencing <laughs> reality itself. If you didn't listen to that one, go check it out. It's good fun. Uh, but I've just found this so overwhelmingly accurate and useful. Like, it's really easy to remember. Of, of everything in that entire book, which I've read twice, I think, that's the one thing that I always just remember first. Mm. And it's really, really useful. So if this advice that we're giving now is maximizing return on investment per word of input, that that's one of them. Because when you remember people's names, when you use their names to talk to them, when you pronounce their name the way they do or the way it's been pronounced their whole life, you just tap into something deep in their psychology that opens them up to you in a way that you don't get otherwise. I think it's incredibly important if you want to have yourself on a reasonable playing field in any conversation or interaction, yeah. be it professional or social. Deepen a connection with someone. I like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, All right. throwing it back to you. Yeah. For me, I heard a piece of advice from Michael Nielsen. He works at Y Combinator Research and he was on a podcast. I think it was Venture Stories. And he said something and it made me think of something else that Tyler Cowan has said. So I wanted to put both of those thoughts out there because I think they deserve to exist in meme space for as long as possible. So what Nielsen said, right, is he thinks a lot about all of the latent good things that people might know about friends that those people don't themselves know. And he thinks about how people can often fail to know some of their best qualities just because there are not that many good societal norms around complimenting people. Mm. And furthermore, there are not that many people who can deliver like a genuine compliment in a way that the other person feels it, right? I mean, we can all say, oh, you're the best, you're fantastic, but people don't often feel that in a way that resonates and makes them feel worthy of the compliment, right? It's possible to actually make someone feel worse by making them feel like they don't really deserve what you're saying. And so he was speaking about this art of making people realize the best parts of themselves and how one of the biggest sort of failure modes of people who are trying to do ambitious things is that they just don't get that small piece of support. I mean, obviously at Y Combinator, they're dealing with people who are dealing with these frighteningly ambitious startups and ventures and failure is always an option. And when you fail and lots of money is on the line, people are going to tell you that you are an ignoramus, right? And his point is, is that much good in the world ends up being left undone because of a failure to properly support those around us when they need it most. Now, just to finish that off, this made me think of a piece of advice that I heard Tyler Cowen give. And I think he titled it The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Raising the Aspirations of Others, or something close enough. And his point here was that if you think of effective altruism, right, the idea that you should try and do the most good possible with your career or with your money, well, something which you can do which gives rather irrationally or inconceivably high returns for the amount of effort is just get the smart, thoughtful, interesting people around you who might otherwise end up doing what you could call the traditional path, right? And just try and raise their expectations of themselves by just some little amount. Because 
if you can get someone who was going to become, let's say, just a medical student, right? Because I know medical students and this is the world I come from. The difference between adding one extra doctor to a system, right? That's that's good, right? And no one would deny that that is a good thing. But if that person is smart enough to make it into med school, right? And you could encourage them through either kind words or just reassurance or maybe by challenging their beliefs. If you could encourage them to try and become a medical researcher, just as an example, where they now have the chance to develop the cure for a disease for which we previously had no cure or had no good options, right? Suddenly, the amount of good that exists in society, the amount of difference that is made, just by, it could honestly be the work of a 20-minute conversation saying, you know, you're really clever. Like, why have you ever considered this? And I'm, not, I'm now not trying to denigrate medicine and say that everyone should become a researcher. You know, I mean, you can do this within medicine. You can do this within whatever discipline you find yourself in. But the point is, is raise your aspirations some tiny little percent and the knock-on effect, the butterfly effect in some sense, is very difficult to predict and could have this huge set of positive outcomes. And so I think just like making a habit of doing this could end up being one of the most positive things you do in your life for virtually no expenditure. And at worst, you're putting slightly more good out into the world. So what more could you ask for? I really like that because we're working here on the assumption that most people are inherently good and have good intentions. And someone who would otherwise be doing medicine is probably already quite a selfless person by ordinary standards if they are willing to work to help others and gain satisfaction from that. And if the general tendency and bias is towards positive outcomes and good intentions, with some caveats that I'll asterisk some other time, then adding a little bit more variability, a little bit more risk, a little bit more of a roll of the dice will on net lead to better, more positive outcomes and increased leapfrogging into new realms of possibility. So yeah, I really, I really, really like that. And you make such a nice link there, right, between the fact that, yes, when, when you tell someone to have higher aspirations, you are increasing their risk, which is then, mm. I think, where Michael Nielsen's advice that having a close system of social support that can tell you, like, we admire sure. you for taking that risk, that can keep mm. the person on that track. Because sure. most of us, thankfully, will not starve. Most of us will not struggle yeah, exactly. in many ways. But yeah, like I mean, this is one of those things where you, you shouldn't abuse it, right? Like you, you, you shouldn't go to the, the person who's uh, working some very low-paying job to support their four children but really loves dancing and is terrible at it and then, you know, persuade them that they should quit everything to go pursue their dance right. career at the age right. of 46. Uh, that's, that's, that, that would be a bit of a, a reckless use of this hmm. power, let's say, of, of this idea. And at the same time, having high aspirations doesn't need to correspond to prestige, right? You might have high aspirations for medical research, as you mentioned, sure. But you might also have high aspirations to revolutionize waste disposal, right? That has lower prestige than being mm. a doctor by a long way. But yet the positive impact one might have and one's ability to change how things are done and improve things requires high aspirations right so it doesn't necessarily have to be in the same direction as what's societally considered high prestige it doesn't have to be starting a finance company it can be whatever it just just must be more out of the ordinary i think is is the general trend exactly like what society assigns prestige for and what we need to get done in the world those two things are not well aligned necessarily collinear they diverge somewhat and we need to support people. People need more of a push to be aspirational if it isn't well aligned with prestige. You know, high prestige things are going to mm. get people regardless. But yeah, I think it's especially when it's a low prestige or, or, or it's something difficult, something difficult that isn't revered for being difficult. And there's many examples out there. So yeah, I think it's a, a really, really powerful meme in the Dawkinsian sense. 
So out into meme space with that one. Awesome. Well, let's leave it there then. Fantastic. Short and sweet. Great. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Bit of a Tangent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us and share your thoughts. You can email us at podtangent at gmail.com. That's P-O-D tangent at gmail.com. Or connect with us on Twitter through the handle at podtangent. For more information about us, our backgrounds, and other projects we're involved in, visit our website at podtangent.com. The best ways to support us are to share one of our episodes with someone who might enjoy them, or give us a rating and review on iTunes. That way, Apple knows that we're actually worth listening to, and all the platforms that pull content from them will know this as well. Jean-Luc and I both love having these discussions, and we relish the opportunity to share ideas with like-minded people around the world. Your support and listenership are sincerely appreciated. Until next time.